Welcome to the Time Machine Talk Show. Here's your host, Miss Ziegler. This is Miss Ziegler here with the Time Machine Talk Show. On this episode, we will be talking about Rome and China and comparing the two. It's on page 129 to page 141, so I might be dividing this up into two parts, but we'll see how it goes. So starting on page 129, and the question you're trying to answer is, you need at least eight differences and three similarities, which should be pretty easy because they give us a lot of information about Rome and China. So let's get started. While the adjacent civilizations of the Greeks and Persians collided, two other empires were taking shape. The Roman Empire on the far western side of Eurasia and China's imperial state on the far eastern end. They flourished at roughly the same time, they accompanied a similar area, and they encompassed populations of a similar size. They were giant empires of their time, shaping the lives of close to half of the world's population. Unlike the Greeks and the Persians, the Romans and the Chinese were only dimly aware of each other and had almost no direct contact. Historians, however, have seen them as fascinating variations on an imperial theme and have long explored their similarities and differences. The rise of empires is among the perennial question that historians tackle. Like the Persian Empire, that of the Romans took shape initially on the margins of the civilized world and was an unlikely rags-to-riches story. Rome began as a small, impoverished city-state on the western side of central Italy in the 8th century BCE. So weak, according to legend, that Romans were reduced to kidnapping neighboring women to maintain their city's population. In a transformation of epic proportions, Rome subsequently became the center of an enormous imperial state that encompassed the Mediterranean basin and included parts of continental Europe, Britain, North Africa, and Middle East. Originally ruled by a king around 509 BCE, Roman aristocrats threw off the monarchy and established a republic in which the men of a wealthy class known as patricians dominated. Executive authority was exercised by two consuls who were advised by a patrician assembly, the Senate. Deepening conflict with the poorer classes called plebeians led to the important changes in Roman political life. A written code of law offered plebeians some protection from abuse. A system of public assemblies provided an opportunity for lower classes to shape public policy. And a new office of tribune who represented plebeians allowed them to block unfavorable legislation. Romans took great pride in their political system believing that they enjoyed greater freedoms than did many of their more aristocratic neighbors. The, value, uh, the values of the Republic, rule of law, the right of citizens, the absent, absence of pretension, upright moral behavior, keeping one's word, were later idolized as the way of the ancestors. So that's basically just describing Roman government. You have the patricians, which are the upper class, wealthy class, and the plebeians, which are a little bit poorer classes. They are somewhat protected by the written law code. All right, let's go on. With this political system and these values, the Romans launched their empire-building enterprise, a prolonged process that took more than 500 years. 
It began in the 590s BCE with Roman control over its Latin neighbors in central Italy and over the next several hundred years encompassed most of the Italian peninsula. Between 264 and 146 BCE, victory in the Punic Wars with Carthage, a powerful empire with its capital in North Africa, extended Roman control over the western Mediterranean, including Spain, and made Rome a naval power. Subsequent expansion in the eastern Mediterranean brought the ancient civilizations of Greece, Egypt, and Mesopotamia under Roman domination. Rome also expanded into territories in southern and western Europe, including present-day France and Britain. By early in the 2nd century CE, the Roman Empire has, had reached its maximum extent. Like classical Greece, that empire has been associated with Europe, but in its own time, elites in North Africa and Southwest Asia likewise claimed Roman identity, and the empire's richest provinces were in the east. Now keep in mind these dates. Alexander the Great dies in 323 BCE. The Hellenistic era goes until 30 BCE. Remember, we're counting down to zero. And Rome is going to start around 200 BCE, but not get to its height until 117 CE. So if you look on page 131, there is a map of the Roman Empire at its extent. Okay, so that's in 117 CE. So keep in mind that your dates with BCE count down to zero, and then once we get to zero, we go back up with CE. No overall design or blueprint drove the building of empire, nor were there any precedents to guide the Romans. What they created was something wholly new, an empire that encompassed the entire Mediterranean basin and beyond. It was a piecemeal process, which the Romans invariably saw as defensive. Each addition of territory created new vulnerabilities, which could be assuaged only by more conquest. Assuage is just a fancy word for saying that they wanted to have more in order to be happy. For some, the growth of empire represented opportunity. Poor soldiers hoped for land, loot, or salaries that might lift their families out of poverty. The well-to-do or well-connected gained great estates earned promotions, and sometimes achieved public acclaim and high political office. The wealth of long-established societies in the eastern Mediterranean, Greece and Egypt, for example, beckoned, as did the resources and food supplies of the less developed regions, such as Western Europe. There was no shortage of motivation for the creation of the Roman Empire. So what are some points about Rome here that we should look at? Well, definitely you need to talk about how it grows into this massive empire. And that one of the reasons that they're doing this and dominating so many areas is for resources. You'll see that throughout history. You can look at the type of government. We should have already written down some notes about that. You can say that poor soldiers hoped for higher salaries to get their families out of poverty. So that gave them the motivation to go and conquer more. And of course, the wealthy just wanted more, more resources, more food supplies. All of those things we might be able to compare with China later on. Let's keep going. Although Rome's central location in the Mediterranean basin provided a convenient launching pad for empire, it was the army, well-trained, well-fed, and well-rewarded, that built the empire. There's another key that you can put down about Roman uh, empire is that they had a great army. Drawing on the growing population of Italy, that army was often brutal in war. 
Carthage, for example, was utterly destroyed. The city was razed to the ground and its inhabitants were either killed or sold into slavery. Nonetheless, Roman authorities could be generous to former enemies. Some were granted Roman citizenship. Others were treated as allies and allowed to maintain their local rulers. There's another key point that you can put down in your notes is that some of the locals were allowed to remain in rule and some were even allowed to become citizens. As the empire grew, so too did political forces in Rome that favored its continued expansion and were willing to commit the necessary manpower and resources. Centuries of empire building and the warfare that made it possible had an impact on Roman society and values. That vast process, for example, shaped Roman understanding of gender and the appropriate roles of men and women. Rome was becoming a warrior society in which the masculinity of upper-class male citizens was defined in part by a man's role as a soldier and a property owner. In private life, this translated into absolute control over his wife, children, and slaves, including their theoretical right to kill them without interference from the state. This ability of a free man and a Roman citizen to act decisively in both public and private life lay at the heart of ideal male identity. A Roman woman could participate proudly in this warrior culture by bearing brave sons and inculcating these values in her offspring. So anytime it talks about men's role or women's role or gender roles, you definitely wanna take note of that because that's definitely gonna be on a test later on. So take some notes on what the men's role was versus the women's role. Press pause so you can do that. All right, here we go. Strangely enough, by the early centuries of the common era, the wealth of empire the authority of the imperial state and the breakdown of older Roman social patterns combined to offer women in the elite classes a less restricted life than they had known in the earlier centuries of the Republic. Ah, this is important too. So you're going to put down a little bit later in Roman history, the elite classes of women got a little bit more rights and here they are. Upper class Roman women had never been as secluded in the home as were their Greek counterparts. And now the legal authority of their husbands was curtailed by the intrusion of the state into what had been private life. The head of the household, or paterfamilias, lost his earlier power of life and death over his family. Furthermore, such women could now marry without transferring legal control to their husbands and were increasingly able to manage their own finances and take part in the growing commercial economy of the empire. So you need to put down that they are later allowed a little bit more freedoms. The man is no longer allowed to just kill them if he wants to. And the woman does not have to give full legal control over to the man or to her husband. She's in charge of her own finances and she can uh, participate in the economy. So like own, own her own business. According to one scholar, Roman women of the wealthier classes gained almost complete liberty in matters of property and marriage. At the other end of the social spectrum, Romans' conquests brought many thousands of women as well as men into the empire as slaves, often brutally treated and subject to the whims of their masters. So you have to remember here that it's only the higher class women that are getting more rights. The relentless expansion of empire raised yet another profound question for Rome. Could Republican government and values survive the acquisition of a huge empire? Are these values going to spread all the way across this empire? 
The wealth of empire enriched a few, enabling them to acquire large estates and many slaves, while pushing growing numbers of free farmers into the cities and poverty. Imperial riches also empowered a small group of military leaders, such as Marius Sola, Pompey, Julius Caesar, who recruited their troops directly from the ranks of the poor and whose fierce rivalries brought civil war to Rome during the first century BCE. Traditionalists lamented the apparent decline of Republican values, simplicity, service, free farmers as the backbone of the army, the authority of the Senate, amid the self-seeking ambition of the newly rich and powerful. When the dust settled from the Civil War, Rome was clearly changing, for authority was now vested primarily in an emperor, the first of whom was Octavian, later granted the title of Augustus, which implied a divine status for the ruler. The Republic was history. Rome had become an empire and its ruler an emperor. But it was an empire with an uneasy conscience, for many felt that in acquiring an empire, Rome had betrayed and abandoned its republican origins. Augustus was careful to maintain the forms of the republic. The senate, consuls, public assembly, and, re and referred to himself as the first man rather than the king or the emperor, even as he accumulated enormous personal power. And in a bow to Republican values, he spoke of the empire's conquest as reflecting the power of the Roman people rather than the Roman state. Despite this rhetoric, he was an emperor in practice, if not in name, for he was able to exercise sole authority, backed up by his command of a professional army. Later, emperors were less reluctant to flaunt their imperial prerogatives. During the first two centuries CE, this empire in disguise provided security, grandeur, and relative prosperity for the Mediterranean world. This was Pax Romana, the Roman peace, the era of imperial Rome's greatest extent and greatest authority. So what you need to remember here is Pax Romana, that means Roman peace, and that is under Octavian. He comes to power after Julius Caesar and ushers in this peaceful time in Rome that's called Pax Romana, so his name goes with that. All right, in our next episode, we will be talking about China and comparing it to Rome. Thank you for listening.